I was in a job interview one time as a third year seminary student. And by the way, if you've ever met someone that knows everything about everything, they were probably a third year seminary student. Anyway, I was at this job interview at this mega church in Ohio, and I was interviewing before the pastoral staff, and there were about 25 pastors gathered around a table. And the senior pastor asked me a question. He asked me, David, how do you think our, our morning service went? And in front of 25 people, <laughs> Mr. Know-it-all seminarian told the senior pastor everything that was wrong or what I thought was wrong in the service. And I told him everything that needed to be changed to make the church better. Needless to say, I didn't get the job. Now, in that moment, when I didn't get that job, I was devastated. I felt rejected. I felt like I wasn't good enough. But now, looking back on that moment, I can see that God not allowing me to have that job was the greatest act of mercy he could have given me at that moment. God was being merciful to me. Why? Because I was full of pride and I needed to be humbled. And that's what God did in that moment. In the same way, tonight, as we look at mankind being dispersed at the Tower of Babel, we actually see one of God's greatest acts of mercy in history. It's mercy. That's what this whole passage is about, God's mercy. And specifically, what we're going to see in this text tonight is that sin makes us think that we need to compete with God. But God, in his mercy, he doesn't bless that competition. No, in fact, he thwarts it. So let's take a look at that in this passage. Uh, starting in verse 1, it says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now notice in this passage, there's a phrase that's repeated three times. The people get together and they say it over and over again. They say, let us, let us make bricks. Let us build a tower. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now the author has that in this passage. He's revealing something to us in this text. And actually, what he's showing us is that these people are setting themselves up in the place of God. This is not the first time this phrase is used in the Bible. 
It's used in the creation narrative. God says, let us make man in our image. So right here at this moment, these individuals are declaring themselves as the primary movers. They're creating now. They're the ones in charge. And I think oftentimes we are guilty of this. That was me in my interview. I was the primary mover. I was getting things done. In the middle of that meeting, what was I saying? I was saying, let me tell you what's wrong with this service. Let me tell you what you need to change to make it better. You see, it was all about me. In that moment, I was attempting to build my own tower just like these people. And so often we try to do this in life because we buy into the lie that we are the ones running the show. And when we buy into that lie that we're the ones running the show, we get caught up in such a self-centered attitude that we cannot see beyond ourselves. We become so self-centered on building our own kingdom and our own tower that we forget that there's a much greater kingdom that we are called to be a part of. Now, there's another word in this passage that's important. Uh, Hannah, if you could put up verse three. It's towards the end of verse three. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Does anybody know where that word bitumen comes from? It's found in a couple other places in the Bible. It's a waterproofing material. It's the same material that God told Noah to seal the ark with. And in fact, it's actually found in the story of Moses when his mom puts the basket into the Nile River. She seals that basket with bitumen. So why are these people waterproofing their tower? And why did they have to cook their bricks so thoroughly? Well, it's simple, because they thought there was another flood coming, and they didn't want their bricks to turn to mud. It's kind of absurd. In this moment, they're trying to compete with God. It's like, bring it on, God. Bring another flood. We'll be fine. We can survive. We have a tower that, that'll keep us safe from your flood. And it's crazy because they're putting all this work into building this tower, and they didn't even know that God had promised he wasn't going to send another flood. You see, they were so focused on themselves that they weren't able to listen to God. They were so focused on building their own tower that they couldn't hear from God. See, this is what happens when we set ourselves up in competition with God. And he can't bless it. He can't bless it. Now, finally, why are they building this tower? Uh, well, it says, so we can make a name for ourselves. They want to glorify themselves. Uh, I imagine in the ancient Near East, the people building this building, uh, they would want the conversations around the plains of Shinar to go something like this. Have you seen those people working in the plains of Shinar? Have you seen their bricks? Their bricks are better than any bricks I've ever seen. Have you seen that tower they're building? It's incredible. If only I could be like those people, they're amazing. You see, they want to have their own name glorified. They want to be glorified before man. And God sees them in their pride, and he loves them so much that he cannot and will not bless them in their competition with him. You see, they're relying on themselves 
for things that only God can provide. They're relying on themselves for protection, for safety, and for glory. And they can't find those things in themselves. And God wants to remind themselves of that. So at this moment in the passage, uh, the people building this tower, they kind of have two options. They could stop and humble themselves before God and say, okay, we know we can't make it to heaven with this tower. This is dumb. This is a bad idea. Or they can continue to build the tower. And they choose the latter. But what we see is God in his mercy, he doesn't destroy them. Actually, in his mercy, he humbles them so that he can show them his grace. So let's take a look at that. In verse 5, it says this. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. Now, I find this kind of funny. I think it's actually a joke in the text. Moses is like, there's millions of people together building this giant tower. It's incredible, right? And God's like, what the heck is going on down there? What are they doing? And he can't see it from heaven. It's too small to see from heaven. So he has to come down to actually look at it. And I just imagine God seeing this tower that these people are building. He's like, you know, maybe they're building a, a rest for my pinky toe. I'm not really sure what they're doing down there. But, uh, and so God comes down to see this tower and he sees the people operating in their pride. So let's keep going to the next verse. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the big beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So he comes down, he sees the people in their pride and how they think that they're saving themselves and how they think their name is going to be the greatest. And he does what he needs to do so that they can receive his mercy. He humbles them. He humbles them. He disperses them to remind them of something, that they're not God and that they're not really in control. You see, what if the collapse of the Tower of Babel is actually one of God's greatest acts of mercy in history? Now, let's take that a little farther. What if the collapse of people's lives is actually an act of God's mercy? What if all those we've seen in power get wrecked recently, destroyed recently, is not God cursing them. It's actually God's great mercy for them to remind them that they're not God, and he is. You see, God will take it into his own hands to humble us if he needs to, so that we can receive his mercy. You see, if the tower is built and God doesn't stop man from doing so, all of humankind is lost. Why? Because we would have been so full of ourselves that we would have never seen our need for God. We would have been unredeemable. But God, in his overwhelming mercy, he breaks up the people at the tower. This is the most merciful thing he could have done. God not allowing me to get that job was the most merciful thing that he could have done. Imagine if I had gotten that job. I would have been a monster on that staff. It would have been horrible. My wife would have been so sick of me because I would have been so full of myself. 
God knew that he needed to humble me. He knew it. And here's the thing. You don't have to be influential or powerful or wealthy or a pastor to be full of pride. Pride can find its way into our lives at any point in time. Some of you might feel like you're on the bottom right now, like you're down on your luck. Well, self-loathing is actually just another form of pride. It's just as bad as thinking too highly of yourself because it's just as self-centered. Standing in judgment of others is another form of pride. You see, pride is so sneaky that it can come into our lives at any point in time. Now, I love what uh, the very influential author, uh, Father Richard Rohr, says about his dealings with pride in the book, Falling Upward. He says this, I've prayed for years for one good humiliation a day, and then I must watch my reaction to it. I have no other way of spotting my pride and arrogance. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, you know, pastor, I don't want to have to be crushed by God. I don't want to have to go through all that heartbreak of being humbled by him. Well, I'm here to tell you this evening, there's a way to circumvent being destroyed by God. And that's by humbling yourself before him. By falling on your face and declaring, Lord, I can't do it. I need you. By saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. So we've seen that God breaks up the people at the tower and that in his mercy, he humbles these people. And some of you may still have a thought in your mind, you know, does God want to break up all the things I'm doing in my life? Does he want to break up my small business? Does he want to break up my current job or my uh, current uh, portfolio of investments? You know, is it just that God's anti-progress And the answer to that question is no, God is not anti-progress. He's not even really anti-making money. No, he's anti-pride. The problem is not having a business or having a good job or even having a good investment portfolio. The problem is putting all your confidence and trust in your business or your job or your investments. If you do that, God may just have to remind you that he's the only one that you can put your confidence in. So as I thought about tonight, I thought about how God shows his mercy to both the humble and the prideful. But what does that actually mean for you and for I? What does it mean when we leave this place? Well, there's a scene from the New Testament that the Lord has been bringing up in my mind over and over again, really for the past two years. And uh, it involves one of my favorite characters in the Bible, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is doing ministry, and his disciples are gathered around him, and they're listening to him, and Jesus kind of shows up. And his disciples start to leave, and they start to go with Jesus. And a couple of John's disciples, they come to him, and they're like, John, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? All your, everybody's going with Jesus. You know, you need to go get your guys. And in that moment, John the Baptist, he really had two options. He could have said, yeah, let's go get them. We need to bring him back. But he doesn't do that. John actually does the opposite. He says something very, very clear. He says to his disciples, no, I must decrease 
so that Jesus can increase. I must decrease so that Jesus can increase. In that moment, John chooses to put the glory to Christ, to not glorify himself, but to glorify Jesus. I, as your pastor, have prayed that prayer of decrease in alignment with John the Baptist almost every day for the past two years. And I pray it every Sunday before this service because my desire is not that Pastor David would be glorified or Army Chaplain David would be glorified. My desire is only that the name of Jesus would be glorified in my life. And that's my desire for me and that's my desire for you as well. Now, I'm going to be gone for the next year, but I'm still going to be pointing people to Jesus. And I expect you all to be doing the same as me, pointing them to the Savior. Now, I think there's a psalm that really summarizes what our job is. And it's in Psalm 115, verse 1. Uh, It says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We point people to Jesus because he is the one who is fully loving and fully faithful. Church, when I come back next year, I expect there to be many more faces in this space I expect you to glorify the name of Jesus in this community. Because guess what? The people living right outside this building are just as desperate for hope as the soldiers I'm going to be with in the war zone. They're just as much in need of Jesus. And he is calling their names. But he wants to use you to bring them in. So church, join me on this mission to glorify Jesus in this coming year. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, not to us, not to us, but to you be the glory. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to us and Lord, for how you are the Savior. It's your steadfast love that draws us in. So God, may we glorify your name in the coming year. And may we, just like John the Baptist, decrease Jesus so that you can increase and be glorified in our lives. We thank you and we praise you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.